Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects of medical device and pharmaceutical regulatory strategy from bench to bedside. Today, I discuss post-market surveillance or PMS with John Jolly, a manager in Global's medical device team. We discuss John's transition from academia into PMS, what PMS is overall and in the context of all post-market activities, the difference between the FDA and the EU with respect to PMS, and we take a deep dive into the impact of the new EU medical device regulation, MDR, on PMS systems. We also discuss how to get you and your colleagues ready for MDR, and John gives us some great advice on how to improve PMS processes in your company and how to develop strong internal partnerships to surmount the challenges of MDR. As always, we wrap things up with Favorite Fridays. Prior to joining Global as manager, MDR consultant, and all-around PMS guru, John worked for several years as a research engineer at a handful of scientific institutions. He then transitioned into a position as post-market surveillance engineer, eventually working his way up to senior manager of PMS. John holds a master's of science and a bachelor's of science in biomedical engineering from the University of Pittsburgh. Enough with the background. Let's talk to John. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come share some of your knowledge and experience related to post-market surveillance or PMS. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here and this is, uh, this is fun. So thank you for having me. So I noticed that you have an a, uh, MS in bioengineering and training in biomechanics and sports medicine. I did my PhD actually at the University of Colorado where they have a huge biomechanics footprint. I had you know lots of classmates and friends who were really involved in this field and I found you know it's it's really really neat and the research they do is really really cool and there were many times where I was jealous of their projects and also was interested in their findings. But I noticed that it's quite a bit different than the clinical world. I mean, in that you're studying typically, not always, but you're studying a state of health and you're looking for physiological optimization. Whereas clinical research, you know, typically surrounds treating diseases. So I'm, I'm just curious, how did you get, you know, from that into medical device regulation and specifically PMS? Yeah, it, it was uh, quite an interesting and I wouldn't say it was a concerted effort. I had been a lab uh, engineer. I did a lot of work in biomechanics, um, orthopedic surgery. That was just kind of by chance. I had a mentor that got me into that that realm and did a lot of coding but it, and um, kind of preclinical experiments. And um, after a couple different places, uh, my grant ended and I needed to find a, a, a real job. So I put my resume out there and um, after a couple of different hits at medical device companies, um, I got a job uh, which I thought was doing research. It was post-market surveillance for a medical device company, uh, Right Medical. The main reason I was hired was because I could go through literature and I could really comb through things, but understand the, the engineering side also. So it was a nice, uh, transition for me, but I didn't know anything about regulations. It took me, I'd say, a better part of a year to really understand what my place was in post-market surveillance. So, so you you got into PMS inadvertently, yeah, 
you know, yeah, it really was landed there, but I take it you liked it. Yeah. It's a fun niche. And you know, it's, it's one of these niches where a lot of people kind of yawn at it, but it's become increasingly important and necessary. I mean, I had never had a, a, a boring year in post-market surveillance. It just keeps getting busier and busier. We get new regulations and now the EU regulation coming out and, um, you know, it just kind of fell into place that way, but, um, it, it's, it's necessary and it does feel like I am helping people, you know? I mean, absolutely. I mean, you are one of the, you know, silent patient advocates and, you know, and we'll get into this in detail later, but the PMS system, you know, really helps protect people. Yeah. Um, not necessarily from malicious or, you know, activities or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's just, you know, not everything's perfect and it's, it's, and everything needs to be monitored. PMS is pretty complicated. Yes. I imagine that it was, you know, making the jump from the academic side into PMS was, was challenging at times. Were there any, you know, significant, you know, hard learned lessons, um, that you, you know, experienced during transitioning? Were there any moments where you found yourself over your head, whether you were just starting or after you had become the head of PMS? Yeah. Yeah. So as you mentioned, when I first started, um, I really had no idea about what post-market surveillance is, what the regulations are. That was the hardest part for me. I could dissect an article and figure out, you know, if it, if it, if it relates to a patient or a product um, or what, but um, I had no idea what to do with that information. And that's really where I needed to have support. And so most of my education came from my friends in regulatory. I, 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 you know, I did a lot working with my friends in regulatory, trying to understand what is the medical device directive? How is it different than the FDA? What are the different terms? Because the, the terminology uh, between these two worlds were different. And I was mainly in the European side of things. So, uh, you know, the the biggest thing I, I would say is it's gotten a lot better nowadays with a lot of the internet and webinars. But, when, you know, way back in 2009, uh, I didn't have a lot that I found on the internet. And I, I really had to get direct education from my partners. And that was a big help. So that's, I think, yeah. the biggest lesson. You know, I, I can imagine and good for you for reaching out and seeking help and taking it upon yourself to learn things, you know, as a, a, a quick tangent, I think that regulatory affairs, medical writing, technical writing are awesome fits for people with, you know, that are just out of graduate school mm-hmm. um, with advanced academic training. And I, I think that it's not it's not on the radar of a lot of people and they think, well, I don't have the skill set to do this, but I disagree completely. I, I rely on my academic training every oh, yeah. single day. Right. And I don't do studies anymore, but you know, exactly being able to read a article and critically think about it, um, being able to understand what the investigators were looking for, discern a good hypothesis from a bad hypothesis, figure out what the research question actually is, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's, you know, is those are skills really honed in rigorous academic environment. Um, is there anything that you would want to say to somebody who's just completing, you know, either undergraduate or an advanced degree, um, that has academic research experience and would like sees doesn't see a future for themselves necessarily in academia 
but doesn't know where to go and you know is regulatory adoption. Speaking to me directly, me too. um, Back in two thousand nine, that that was me. I thought as an engineer and a researcher, the only thing I'm going to get is an R and D job, and that was it. That was the only thing I was. That's all I applied to was was R and D jobs. And a, a recruiter is the one that reached out to me. It, it was no fault of my own that I, I ended up in PMS, but I became a hiring manager of the PMS and CER group. Uh, and I will tell you, I look for people with academic research backgrounds mainly, especially ones without experience, because those are the people that um, the ones with good research backgrounds, I only have to show you the ropes. I only have to show you the regulations, which now that I've had a lot of time to digest them, I can teach them quickly, but I, it's really hard to teach someone uh, how to do research, how to read research. That takes a lot of skill, more than I have, but and I have taught it. But I, I will say there is a huge field in post-market surveillance and clinical evaluation reports and regulatory affairs also um, for anybody that's done research. Um, but that doesn't really want to teach or be in academics. Um, it, it's, it's expanding quite a lot. So it's a good opportunity. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, at Global, we definitely value people with academic training. You know, we have some amazing colleagues who haven't completed a traditional academic path or have had regulatory training, specific regulatory affairs mm-hmm. training, and they're excellent. But I think that academic training teaches you exactly what you said, the critical thinking and the intellectual skills that you, you just, it's so difficult to teach on the Mm -hmm. job. If you can, if you can do it at all. Right. And you know, it's a certain type of person. You know, if you were into academic research and you've made it through an advanced degree or, or a difficult undergraduate in the STEM field, you, you probably have the disposition for this. And you know, we've actually started internally a internship program um, that's looking for people um, with this background um, to transition them into the medical writing space. And we're, you know, we're really excited about that. But enough with that digression. Let's talk about let's talk about PMS. But before we get too deep into it, all of our listeners may not be totally familiar with what PMS is and what some of the specific tenants of PMS are or just different regulations in general. Um, for those, the medical device directive or MDD mm-hmm. is a, a is the EU regulatory set for medical devices. And then the FDA does that, is the the American counterpart of the EU. And mm-hmm. the EU uses a system of notified bodies to evaluate regulatory submissions, whereas the United States uses the FDA. And so the regulations definitely differ between the two, but there's a lot of commonalities between them. We will cover any acronym we discuss in the show notes, so don't feel like you need yeah. to scramble and write these down. There, there will be resources that you can access later. Can you give us a little background on PMS? Yes, yes. I'll give you a very quick and dirty background because we could we could spend a couple of lectures doing just kind of the lead up to where we are today. But basically, a lot of what we know as post-market surveillance today uh, or at least a lot of the research that I know, started in, in the U.S. Uh, you can go back to the 1800s where you're looking at purity of um, drugs and chemicals. But then the FDA was basically formed in the very early 1900s, 1906 about. 
And then in 1938, the FDA was given jurisdiction over medical devices, right? And then, you know, you had certain levels of regulations, but it, it was pretty, pretty bad and pretty empty, really, when it came to keeping people safe. It was a good step forward, but it wasn't great. You had some drug problems. You guys might have heard of certain ones like thalidomide um, causing birth defects uh, in the 1960s. There was a bunch of other ones. In 1976, there was a big change in the U.S. medical devices. And, you know, all at the same time, Europe is not really coordinating how they regulate medical devices. They are, you know, some countries are, some countries aren't. But this is before the EU was even established. So it, it wasn't the same. And a lot of times people would go to the Europe and get something passed and then run clinical trials there and then go to the U.S. And it was actually much harder to get in the U.S., um, right about 1990 is when what we know the medical device directive in Europe started, but it was also the same time that the U.S. started forming better post-market surveillance, which is once you you are cleared for sale, then you start watching your device. That's that's really the the easy definition is as what goes on with your device after you start um, either implanting it, selling it to customers. Um, it involves everything from band-aids to um, heart stents, you know, venous stents. So there was a lot of upgrades from 1990 through, let's say, the early to late 2000s. And right around then is where um, there was a lot more scrutiny. There was a couple of scandals that happened. And uh, it seems like a big word, but it really was. There was the silicone breast implants scandal where it, there was a company that used industrial grade silicone and you guys might have heard of that. And then, you know, it, during my, I guess, early tenure was when the big metal on metal devices started happening. And um, I was actually part of a company with metal on metal. So I got to kind of see it the end of that era in real time. And that really set Europe where they said, you know, we are done. And I would say probably 10 years ago is when they started their working on their new regulation, which is what we now know as the medical device regulation or the MDR. So that's kind of how we got to where we're, we are now. Um, the U.S. Um, does mostly um, kind of reactive things. So once you get your product launched, whether it's a lengthy process uh, with a big clinical trial or you can claim equivalence to a, de a device, um, pretty much as long as your device doesn't cause any problems, um, that's about all that's required is when something bad happens, you submit it to the government and that's it. Whereas in Europe, they've really taken a more proactive approach to it where, you know, even if your device is, let's say, 10 years old, you better have clinical data or be proactively getting that clinical data in addition to all the all the complaints and reactive side that, that we'll get into later. You know, these these regulations weren't necessarily in place because of anything malicious, but there wasn't a huge need. But now as these things become so pervasive, medical devices become so pervasive mm -hmm. in all aspects of medicine, we have to protect the patients and and, you know, mistakes can be made. There can be, you know, side effects or adverse events that don't come out in the clinical trials. But when you release it to the whole population, 
you know, the, the device could act much differently in different types of people. Um, so it's mm-hmm. really good that we have these measures in place. My question is, so you mentioned that the FDA is reactive, you know, and there's, the, there's a reactive component to the EU. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people think of that as vigilance data. So we think for those who, who have worked with vigilance data often synonymize vigilance with PMS. How are they different? I'll say in my experience, I'm going to say that a couple times because, um, you know, I've, I've worked at a company and now I work for Global for the last few months. Um, so vigilance is is like traditionally an EU type term, but it's it's becoming more of a global term for um, collecting complaints, collecting what goes wrong with your product, um, including uh, whether it's a, you know, hearing about recalls of another product but vigilance typically is a complaint that reaches a certain threshold of adverse event. So it could be like maybe a small instrument um, broke that didn't cause a problem. That's probably not going to be vigilant. Whereas if you have an implant that breaks inside of you um, and causes a big clinical problem, that's going to be reported to the government. So uh, I typically call it a reportable adverse event um, because We've had people on the U.S. side confused and the FDA, well, what is this vigilance? And um, But it is becoming more synonymous across the world, which is nice to have literally one word for that. So does that make sense? Absolutely. And wouldn't it be great to have alignment? Maybe yeah. someday. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. It's, it's getting there. It really is. It, it is. And I think, you know, side note, I think the FDA is working really hard to make it easier to gain um, approval in both the United States and the EU, but that's a whole nother, whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's coming out of efficiency's sake, but we shall see. So how does how does PMS differ from another common, commonly kind of lumped together term, which is PMCF? So sometimes people see PMCF or post-market yeah. clinical follow-up as a component of PMS or the same thing? How are they different? So you normally see PMCF in Europe and not a lot in the U.S. Usually when you see it in the U.S., that's an indicator that the FDA has asked for um, extra follow-up, which is usually bad. So if you think about um, post-market surveillance as a pie chart, part of that pie chart is going to be all the stuff we have talked about, the vigilance, but the other part in, in the European regulations is a proactive um, element. And it's, it's more of an active thing where you, you go and do a study after the fact. So, you know, you did all your preclinical studies, you might do um, an actual clinical study before you launch your, your device, but then, you know, you don't always know if it's gonna work well. So the Europeans have really wanted um, everybody to do some form of uh, post-market clinical follow-up. Most people think of that as a clinical study, um, but it could be, um, it it ranges a lot between, let's say a simple survey, um, all the way out to a huge full-blown multi-center randomized control trial or a huge registry um, of cohorts, uh, my background in orthopedics, um, most of the countries have a registry for, it's like a national registry of implants. And 
um, that data is starting to be mined. So instead of doing studies with, let's say, 50 patients or maybe 100 patients, uh, these are studies with 5,000 patients. You don't have as much detail, but you do have huge cohorts. Um, so in the U.S. side of things, um, post-market clinical follow-up typically isn't good. It, it usually means your device or maybe your competitors are starting to fail. Um, there, there actually are active uh, PMCF trials right now for uh, metal and metal hip implants. And so it's basically most companies, if not all, have already recalled all those implants. There's a lot of patients still that have those. So the FDA is now kind of going back and saying, we want you to follow them to make sure there's not extra measures needed. So it's it's a bit of a different approach, but from a lot of the people I've talked to, um, there's going to be a shift in the U.S. towards the Europeans, uh, I guess, way of doing PMCF. So uh, to be determined, but, you know, we shall see. We, we say jokingly in the, the industry, or at least a global, MDR means more data required, mm-hmm. right? So, it, you know, yes. the, the, the burden, the bar is set so much higher than it used to be, which I think is um, great in a lot of ways and also challenging in a lot of ways. Um, you know, yes. something you've touched on that I've, I'm, I'm really interested in is the, the dissimilarities between the U.S. and EU systems. So, you know, summarizing, the U.S. FDA system is, is fairly reactionary. Once you gain approval, they pretty much leave it alone until something yeah. significant happens. Whereas the EU is now requiring manufacturers to be much more diligent. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any other differences that you would like to highlight or do you have any opinions on, you know, approaches that work better than others? You know, the, for me, the big picture is, is that, you know, the FDA and the EU, they, they are working together. But if you think about the big systems, the FDA kind of kicked everything off. And for a long time, they were the leader in things. And then they kind of um, slowed down, whereas the EU picked up and ran with it. And now the U.S. is has been kind of stagnant in terms of their regulations, uh, which means I would expect the U.S. to pick up their regulations soon. But as you had said, in the U.S., typically it's a reactive system. So as long as your product's not causing you know a public health threat or anything bad, uh, typically you only really hear from the FDA when you submit something or during an audit. And those audits are different than European audits. Sometimes it's the same third-party company that does the audit, but it's a different system. One thing that there is kind of a multinational audit system that I won't get into, but that is actually starting to coordinate things. That's U.S., Canada, Brazil, Japan, and Australia. And um, it, it really has helped a lot with bringing everybody kind of more together. Um, but the EU is not part of that. We will see. So getting back to that, the EU, they want a lot of what we call post-market or after-launch activities. So some of that is, you know, these PMS um, activities, collecting complaints, doing PMCF. You also have to do these big lit reviews that global is, you know, expertise in where we do. um, It's not just one time where it's ongoing. You know, in the U.S., you do kind of a basic lit review when you submit um, for approval, but it's a one-time deal. And the literature can change where researchers maybe didn't even look at something or know about something before. That's where the EU 
um, I think is stronger because when you see a shift in a technology, uh, we're going to pick it up um, over time with the EU type of post-market surveillance. I think that that's a really cool aspect of EU regulations. I heard a saying the other day that the only thing that devalidates science is better science. Yes. Right. And, and, and science you. is is constantly changing, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the saying, all models are incorrect, some are helpful. So, you know, I, I think that's really neat that the EU requires that. It is also, it's kind of a burden to do every year, two years, three years, whatever, whatever the requirements are. But I do think that it, it's really helpful because it keeps everybody up to date. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, I have heard from friends and family something to the effect of, I don't believe American companies do post-market surveillance. Is this true? Do, do some companies miss the mark? Um, and if they, if they fail to engage in these activities, what are the regulatory consequences? I know in the EU, it can be pretty significant. And, yeah. and you know the requirement for proactive PMS and for constant PMS um, really kind of prevents this type of activity. But do you ever see it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the big things about post-market surveillance, it's not linear from um, pre-launch to post-launch to obsolescion. You know, I mean, that is what you call the product lifecycle. But if you think about a company, they're always or probably always redesigning, making new things. And one of the ways that companies learn from um, previous designs, whether it's maybe not a bad design, but just no longer kind of fashionable or we want better is through post-market surveillance. So we, you collect information and you say, okay, how does this compare to what we know we either should have or want? And so one of the problems is if you're not really being made to be accountable, like the EU does by doing these big lit reviews and complaint analyses um, every year or two years, as you said, then you may not even know how far off the mark you are. And when something bad happens, it happens quick and happens hard. And everybody is up in arms because we didn't see this coming. Whereas having a good, robust post-market surveillance system where, you know, it's not just some people and quality collecting complaints and then filling out reports and filing them away, however that that, that would happen. But it's, uh, you know, an active engagement in the the executive team and upper management. You know, when, when I have worked with the heads of R&D to, you know, um, report my findings for post-market surveillance, you know, the, the big give and take was here is how I want you to present it to us so we can kind of quickly go through it. Give me the highlights because you can't expect every single executive manager, executive team person to, to go through these huge reports. And I understand. So, but it takes, it takes engagement between all these departments. You know, I, I have seen, at least a company or two really kind of fall short. And, and now when we're ramping up regulations, they don't know what to do because they're not even used to working with different departments. It's just, you know, it, it makes it a huge step instead of a bunch of little steps of getting better and better and quicker and quicker over time. So that's the biggest thing is 
you know, my successes are when I've been able to work with other departments and engage, you know, let's say efficiently with upper management just so they can make better decisions going forward. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we encounter that quite often um, working with various companies and you know, we'll touch on this in a little bit, but MDR really requires teamwork. Yes. Um, you have to pull in all aspects of the QMS system for it to work efficiently. And for some, you know, small, medium sized device manufacturers, this is an expensive activity that doesn't generate any revenue um, that maintains, you know, it does maintain compliance, but the day to day, nobody's auditing you and asking, you know, what's your complaints look like? So it's, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's really easy, you know, for companies to, especially if the employees are stretched kind of thin to brush this off or put in place processes that are not ultimately very efficient. And so, you know, then all of a sudden they're in a really bad spot when they do get audited or something does happen and it it could be catastrophic. So, you know, one thing I think that is interesting that we do, and I'm sure other people do, but is, is to kind of encourage these types of activities in people that don't have really robust systems you know, we, we kind of teach them a, how to be efficient. You know, you can use this data for other things. If you do it correctly and you collect Mm -hmm. it correctly, you can use it as clinical evidence. It just depends on how you, there are ways that you can kill a couple birds with one stone, you know, if you go about it correctly. It, 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 It should never just be filed away and useless. There's been so many times where even so much as like a year ago, I went back to a report I did in 2009, 2010, just to look back at what I had done. And, you know, it, it definitely helped me. I, I think that companies that don't work proactively to better their systems, just to engage in the rest of the industry and ask, what are you guys doing? It, it's amazing how many times I've been to some sort of cross-functional conference and somebody asked me how I do something and it and none of it is proprietary. It's and I'll, I'll ask somebody else from a different company, a big company, how you do something. And I learn a lot by doing that. And, you know, the key is how do I implement it? And that just takes smart people like like we are to do that. And it, it shouldn't it really shouldn't be that hard. We just wrapped up something with a company where we beefed up their postmarket surveillance procedures a big aspect of that was talking them through it and saying, how do you actually enact these things? Because we were making them EU compliant. I took their procedure from four pages to 40 pages. Crazy. And I, and I understand that, but really everything's laid out. There's no question of what you have to do anymore. And I, I provided a lot of examples along the way. So it just takes some engagement and some forward thinking but you have to do it proactively. And that, that's really what it's all about is spending time, a little bit of time, just like you develop devices, develop whatever system you have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Don't be afraid to get into it. Don't be afraid of it. And sharing is caring. If yeah. you are, you know, you're part of a small startup and you're wearing 14 hats and one of them is the PMS reach out to people. They're willing to share information. Like you said, this isn't proprietary. This no. is, you know, everybody can help each other out with this. Um, everybody wants to see efficient PMS processes because it just, you know, speeds up advancement. 
and, um, you know, better delivery of care to patients, which is, you know, kind of ultimately why we're all here. So don't don't hesitate to reach out. And then if you have a wonderful PMS system, don't be afraid to share it with the world. Nobody's going to take your market share with your PMS system. It's it's completely different. And and if you need help, definitely. Yeah, definitely reach out to people. Of course, we would be happy to help anybody with it. But well, you know, that's one example of this is the regulatory affairs world. The regulatory affairs world is not a proprietary system. And there is a huge society, the RAPS Society, um, the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society. And I mean, they even have a segment just on post-market surveillance there. But I, I will say that they're the ones that really encouraged me that there could be other post-market surveillance professionals out there and and CER professionals. And, you know, that that was something that they share information so freely at these places, at, at these conferences once a year or more. And oh, and none of it was really hurting the business. So, yeah, if, if you are unaware and new to the to this to this realm, um, the Raps Society is fantastic. You know, local meetups almost anywhere yeah. um, that cover topics, and it's a great place to meet colleagues and get suggestions. And it's like a real life forum. It's it's fantastic, and I know for a fact that they're doing um, virtual happy hours and webinars and um, lectures right now. So yeah. you may even have more access to it than if it was just the local events. So I'd like to get a little bit in the weeds um, okay. and specifically, I'd love to talk about PMS in the face of MDR. So mm-hmm. basically all medical device manufacturers who market products in the European Union are acutely aware of the new medical device regulations on the horizon called collectively MDR. Um MDR comes with some fairly significant changes compared to MDD, which is the currently in place regulation. And MDD certificates are going to expire by 2024 or earlier. So these manufacturers should be transitioning all of their systems into a model that's compliant with the new MDR regulations. Um, Can you give us an overview of, of some of the big changes and what these guys should watch out for? Yeah, I'll give you kind of my takeaways. Um, I spent the last three years kind of going through this, digesting it and kind of spitting it out. Um, I've had to present to executives before just so they know the high level. So I'm not, uh, we can go into the weeds more if, if, if you want. Um, There's seven areas that, that I'm going to talk about. The first one is post-market surveillance plan. Uh, so under the MDD, they, they did imply that every company needs a post-market surveillance plan. And under the MDD, I had a general kind of procedure for post-market surveillance for every one of the devices in my last company. And it was it was my PMS plan. And it was a plan for how we're going to collect post-market surveillance for everything. And, I, you know, it was, it was adequate under the MDD. Under the MDR now, every single device or a group of devices where you where you can justify having a group of devices needs a post-market surveillance plan written in place. Now, where you store that is kind of a, 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 a bit of something we don't know how your notified body is going to want it stored. We've really heard that it needs to be on kind of a separate piece of paper, and it's just going to be easier to do that. And that needs to be in effect for not only your MDR devices, but your MDD certified devices. So just a caveat, as soon as May 2021 comes around, it used to be May 2020, but 
uh, COVID-19 pushed it back to May 2021, all devices, whether they're MDD or MDR, need to comply with every single PMS requirement. And so that, that, is, that includes PMS plans. So the next part is the report. Now, um, more than likely, if you're used to the MDD, you are used to a PMS report. And uh, typically, that was somewhat general, more complaints-focused, but now under, um, let's see, it's Article 85 and talked about in um, Annex 3, there is needs to be a PMS re a report for your Class 1 devices. And now we have a new type of, of PMS report called the PSUR, which is um, Periodic Safety Update Report. It's kind of a fancy name for a PMS report. And basically, it's for all, all device classes above a Class 1. So class 2A, 2B, and 3 under the EU. That's covered by Article 86 and Annex 3 again. Um, and basically, and I, you know, I've really thought a lot about a lot about this a lot. It's basically the same as your class one PMS report, um, as far as I can tell, because they're all covered by the same PMS plan requirements. However, the PSUR needs to be submitted to Unimed at certain intervals. Whereas the PMS um, report for class one is basically on file for whenever you either get audited or mo more than likely you have to submit it during the recertification period, which is every five years. So at least every five years, you have to update that. Um, and now there's specific intervals for the PSUR. Um, class 2A is two years and class 2B and 3 is annually, um, which is a bit more frequent than I, I used to do uh, the PMS reports. Okay, so there's another report now that's new, and um, I'm, uh, I included it in, in um, PMS because it is definitely related to post-market surveillance. It's called the Summary, and Safety, Summary of Safety and Clinical Performance, the SSCP. And um, it, every company's kind of um, enacting this differently, but I was part of it in my last company. And um, I like to think of it as kind of a combination of an IFU, a CER, and your PMCF report or findings. Um, it's only for kind of the higher risk implantable and class three devices. It does need submitted um, to the European database, which I'll talk about um, uh, coming up. The interesting thing, it needs to be written for the users. So if only surgeons are ever gonna see this, it may only need to be written in their language. But if actual people are going to be seeing this, it needs to be written, I think, at like a fourth or fifth grade level. So that's going to really take some new people involved in this and not just persons like myself. I'm used to writing very technical. Um, and there is a, um, a guidance document that the EU Commission has published, which I'll send you a, a link for, Jamie, um, on how to do an SSCP. That's one of the few documents that they've put out so far uh, that's been helpful. So, uh, uh, so vigilance. Uh, one of the big questions is, has the complaint system really changed at all? And it has. So basically, um, anytime you have to report a complaint, um, it needs to be faster. And, and the 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 word is always immediately or no later than. Um, so for serious events, it's it's now 15 days instead of 30 days after the company was made aware of it. Uh, public health threats, you got two days. 
patient deaths or um, unanticipated serious um, events, it's no later than 10 days. But again, I have a feeling they're going to be really pushing companies for immediately. And so that's going to be something that's going to um, companies are going to have to figure out how to do, um, how to how to go quickly. And that was something my last company, their quality system, they had to really think about how are we going to do this faster? One thing that was part of the MDD, but was not very well defined was trending. So whenever you had some complaints that kind of trended upwards, if you're looking at an XY graph going to the right, you see your complaints rate going up. That before didn't need to be reported, but the criteria was not very well defined. It was basically you set a threshold and if it goes over that and you can't explain it, then you have to report it. But now Article 88 really wants you to not only report um, either an increase in the uh, frequency past a predefined threshold or the severity and the methodology has to be in your PMS plan. And they've made it pretty clear that it has to be a statistical methodology. You can't just say, well, you know, it's an observational trend and it doesn't look like it's that bad. They, they really want you to do a statistical plan. And um, I got to kind of see it develop my last company where it's basically a running average of let's say last so many months compared to the last two, three years before. Um, and every month it was updated. Um, these have to be reported to the European database. Um, I haven't figured out when yet. I don't think there's been anything published on when, um, but I definitely could be wrong there. Um, and they made it very clear in the MDR, if you read Article 88, that um, the competent authorities, which are the authorities that run every country, so you know France has a competent authority, Germany has a competent authority, they will probably be doing their own assessments of incident trends. So when a company reports an incident trend, they are, you know, more than likely they're going to just sample it. But I bet you they have certain industries that that they're going to be looking into more specifically. So that's most likely going to happen. And they're going to start letting it known to the EU Commission and your notified body. Um, and you're going to be under more scrutiny. And that's the way it is. Um, OK, moving on. We only have a couple more left, uh, two more. Device classification. Now, this is more of a regulatory conformity assessment area. So they've made some changes to what is a class 1, 2A, 2B, and 2.3. So it's something that you really want to talk to your regulatory affairs professionals on because, you know, if your device was a class 1 and now it's a 2A, that could seriously affect the, the timing that you put out reports. Um, they made a big um, statement about the central circulatory system and the central nervous system. So basically, if your device contacts either of those, it's an automatic class three. And so that, that automatically bumps you into things like having to do an SSEP or having to report things more often. Um, and then there is basically a new clause for software that um, it's going to fall in line with the same class as the device it is paired with. You know, if you have a control system that, let's say it was previously a class 2A, that uh, was pretty low risk, but your device contacts the, the heart or the nervous system, it's a class 3 automatically. Um, but then again, like I said, 
contact your regulatory affairs people. It's something that you need to pay attention to because you have to budget your time for the MDR. Okay, lastly, and I've, I've talked about this a little bit, there is a European database. It's been talked about for a while, it's called Udemed. And um, it is going to be launched, I believe in what, two years maybe. They, they have some parts of it uh, live right now, but it's not near uh, as functional as they wanted it to be by now. It's probably being pushed back um, again. So it's articles 33 and 34. So you, a lot of the PMS-related documents, the PSURs, your SSCPs, all of your reportable um, adverse events, your vigilance reports, trend reports, your recalls, they all have to be submitted to the, the Unimed, but only for MDR-certified products. So during this transition period, um, your MDD devices, none of that um, gets submitted through Unimed. It's only directly to your notified body, and they're probably going to run it up the chain to the competent authority if they have to. So those are my seven aspects of PMS for the MDR. Um, hopefully that was comprehensive. Oh, oh, is it is it just those things? <laughs> just that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, we, we could talk, you know, I've been to seminars that were three-day seminars just about this. So oh, abs- um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. No, and you, you know, Udemed is so ambitious. Um, you know, it's, it's this database where there's going to be a central repository of all this regulatory information, including a unique device identification code for each and every device sold, um, depending on the class of the device, but you know, inc- incredible traceability and trackability. Yes. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so um, excited to see, you know, what happens in the future. We'll be able to, to audit that, um, and really see trends so much better. So yeah. that's really cool. One aspect of Udemed is how to get all of your your UDIs, your unique device identifiers into the system. And it was something that I kind of, I got to watch my last company start working on. Um, and it takes a huge software system. You, you know, from what I had learned, there, there wasn't a lot of companies I mean, there's, there's not a lot of systems that help you do that. So uh, it's a small area and um, it, it has a huge impact just doing that. Um, so mm-hmm. that is going to be I think that's one of the things that they're having a hard time with, with giving everybody access to it. Yeah, I mean, it, the undertaking they're proposing is is wild for both of the company and for the regulatory bodies themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very cool. One thing is. I would recommend is do not wait to do your SSCPs or to take a look at them. Um, personally, they're one of my favorite documents to write, but they're, they're pretty challenging depending on the device and what you have going into it. And, um, this is an example of how MDR requires cross-functional teamwork. Um, and because really you should be getting, your quality system involved, your clinical research team involved, your vigilance PMS team involved and legal uh-huh. because, because you need to describe some things, um, in the SSCP, you need to describe a lot of things about the device that, you know, have been held as proprietary information and not been distributed cons- to consumers. I mean, this makes the IFU look like 
you know, the, oh, yeah. the, the summary on the back of a novel. I mean, not to say that they're super long always or but they, they definitely provide more details than are usually publicly available. So um, there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. Every SSCP that I've worked on has been done kind of differently um, within the same company or within, you know, definitely differently between companies. You know, it's a it's a wonderful place where we are right now because we're all kind of figuring out the best way to do it. Um, but it's also, this is not something that you're like, oh yeah, I've got to also write that SSCP. I'll just do that in the afternoon after my X is done. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, give it, 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 it deserves respect and time. Um, and the same goes with PSURs and really understanding what you need to do. It's not the, the MDR is not designed to stifle innovation or stifle any medical device manufacturer. It, it's just to, the, the goal is to protect patients and, you know, they're really willing to work with you, but you do need to, you know, they're going to respect your, you and your device and you need to respect the regulations and take a look at things because they do require some changes and some thinking about things in different ways and pulling in some people that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily involved routinely. On that note, as some of us struggle with PMS, um, especially for getting MDR compliance, gaining MDR co compliance, what are some things you've seen that work really well? Like, what are some best practices you suggest? Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm going to speak here from my personal experience. I kind of fell down the rabbit hole uh, with the MDR and post-market surveillance since it was published in 2017. And I attended a lot of trade shows. I attended some uh, specific um, learning sessions with that from various um, consulting agencies. And not, not just one really helped me. Um, so this was kind of my, my way about it. But this, this kind of applies to everything, not just post-market surveillance. So I think um, every aspect of the MDR really does need first things first. You know, uh, you need a few people in your company that's really going to dive into the MDR. I, whether I wanted it or not, I, I, I had to learn about the MDR and my, my previous um, assignment was, you know, you have to be an expert in all things post-market surveillance and MDR. So I jumped into it. I got to go with, you know, people from regulatory and quality and do some big training on that. I went to roadshows, the, the RAPS conference. Um, you know, we had people going to everything, but it was only just a handful of people. And then we disseminated that to the company. The first things first, you know, we really needed to tell our executives and upper management what is coming because, uh, you know, without their blessing, we can't really make any changes. So um, changes in terms of workflow, terms in terms of man hours and how many people we need and capital investment sometimes. So that is something that needs to be kind of high level digested. Um, I, I got to kind of help that that here at um, Global too. So that was that was nice. Um, and then those teams need to form kind of bigger teams. So we had a post-market surveillance and clinical team. We had a quality team. We had a regulatory team, um, R&D team. And we, had, we had all these teams, um, but it wasn't just those one departments in there. So I, I got to hang out in the regulatory team and the labeling team. And, you know, if it sounds like it was a lot of meetings and a lot of work, it, it really was. 
Um, but then again, you know, um, I would be in a PMS team meeting and someone from regulatory would say something and totally change our course and, and fix the problem we were trying to solve. So, you know, these cross-functional team meetings were, were, were crucial. Um, I don't think we would have gotten to where we were without those things. Um, so those, those team meetings really need to do a gap assessment. Where, where are we now with MDD? Where do we need to be with the MDR? And that includes all of your SOPs, your work instructions, your templates, um, what people do we need to train? Um, and then let's look at our products or even general product levels. You know, one of the best things that, that I got to take part in was their product portfolio analysis. So, you know, I, we happened to watch a webinar from, I think, BSI, and they talked about doing a product portfolio analysis. And we went down that, that um, rabbit hole and it really helped us in the end because we were able to, to, to help our processes and figure out what products are, are going to be uh, sustainable in Europe and actually return a profit. But also in doing that, it showed us how to, in, how to balance um, the, the investment into the MDR versus whatever sales, you know, these were two different processes. We had our marketing and sales team, and then you had kind of our, our quality clinical post-market surveillance teams, and they were really separate, but it came together for the product portfolio analysis. And it, it just really, um, helped us figure out these are the products that are really going to be achievable, um, to, to sell, you know, um, I will say one of the biggest things that um, we looked at was clinical evidence. And I will tell you that PMCF is go was a deal breaker for many of our products because we were selling some products that were 20, 30 years old that had um, not only not really any clinical evidence, but no ability to collect it because nobody wanted to do research on a 30 year old device. Um, it, you know, people want to do research only on certain things. So that, that really gave us a direction to go for the MDR. Cross-functional team meetings, making sure no matter what your executive team and upper management are engaged. Um, that is a lot of work. <laughs> I definitely understand that. And, um, doing these, um, gap analyses and product portfolio analyses, th those really did help a lot. So it, it is a lot of work and, um, we've seen this, uh, you know, in several different companies, um, mm -hmm. resistance to yeah. getting these type of processes set up. And it's, and I think one of the things that, that can be at the core of a lot of these things is actually, um, really easy to fix. And that's just a, an understanding of what's actually needed. So, you know, the CER team from a company can go to the IFU team and say, I need you to rewrite this. I need this tomorrow. Yeah. Have a nice evening, you know, because it's critical. And they're like, why? We have, you know, a laundry list of things to do. I don't uh -huh. understand. Um, you know, our IFUs out there, the products out there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and the same goes with the, you know, the clinical staff, um, you know, just, I think a building an understanding of what we actually need, have your CR team go out to these teams, do a prepare of a, a, a short lecture showing these are the inputs that we need. And we need these before we can do our job. And if we don't do our job, we have to pull our product off the market in the yeah. European union. Um, so 
you know, th- this is really important and it is challenging, but it's not going anywhere. So, so, you know, we definitely need to, to engage in those activities. And I would also suggest that if you are heading a regulatory team and you are overwhelmed and don't know where to start, don't hesitate to reach out to a consultant that's helped other companies do this. Um, they can do really quick gap analyses for you. They can provide suggestions on processes. I mean, there may be a way to go about this that you had never considered that um, saves a lot of time and energy and resources. Um, you know, and and the the best way to learn how to do this, unfortunately, I think, is to do it. Um, yeah. or to learn from people who have, who have done it and, and struggled through it. Um, there aren't, like you mentioned, there aren't a ton of guidances. I'm very glad that they released some, um, software as a medical device guidance, um, which was really, really helpful, you know, cause that's a huge change there. We were, we just recently worked on a project, a software that was, you know, it was a really fun project, but it was really challenging cause we're kind of in this new space with software. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it seems daunting. But you can, there are right ways and there are wrong ways. There are efficient ways and there are inefficient ways um, to do this. And, you know, if you're feeling a, over your head, you know, there are a lot of really wonderful people in the industry that are, are, have gone through this or are going through this right now. And, um, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to them. And if you're just starting this process, I would suggest that you absolutely reach out to someone because you're a little bit behind at this point, depending on your device class. Um, it takes you know, a lot longer than you think. It really yeah, does. Exactly. And on that note, if you ever, if anybody listening to this ever wants a sanity check on what their device class is under MDR, email us and we will happily walk you through it for free. We'll let you, you know, we'll give you our, our, our two cents on mm-hmm. what your device class is. And, and please do this before you go too far down because there are dramatic differences. If you have a, if you, if you think you have a two A and you have a three, you, you, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not going to look good. Yeah. It's, it's going to be hard, to, <laughs> hard, hard it, times just, for a little while. Yeah. It's going to be a wall that you can't overcome when you submit for an MDR, see Mark, and they say, sorry, this is a three. If you can't convince them it's a two A and then you have to agree that it's a three, um, you know, that means you have to write an SSCP all of a sudden. And um, you want to come to the MDR notified bodies with as strong of a system as you can, with as much confidence that you can. Um, and start your relationship off because it's, it is kind of a clean slate with all these notified bodies. They've had to redo everything themselves too. So that's all. Exactly. And, and, um, for those who are submitting annual updates under MDD still, um, you, you may or may not have started to see that the level of scrutiny has gotten much greater and they're starting to apply the MDR standard, um, to a lot of class three products. Years ago, like two years ago, they started to apply it to us and my last company. Oh, totally. And we, you know, we saw that here and, you know, and that's helpful for the guys that are, you know, the super high risk, you know, submitting annual updates, et cetera, et cetera. But for the, you know, for the class ones, class twos, Mm -hmm. you know, where their entire company is class one, class two, they may not have had that exposure depending. Um, and, and so reach out, phone a friend. Yeah. There are plenty out there, <laughs> but, um, you know, just, yeah, don't, don't necessarily try to go at this alone. So, um, on that note, 
Are there any other tips you have you would like to share for developing a highly efficient PMS program system um, cross-functional team? You know, I, I, I really think that, um, and this isn't going to be groundbreaking, but I do think there, it, it, it was something that really did help us a lot. My last company was making more of an automated process. It was very, very painful. You know, our complaint system was basically semi-manual. I mean, of course that we had a software system that was compliant, but it, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the steps in the process to generating um, a complaint rate and to understanding if that meets the threshold was manual. And um, a lot of that was converted over to an automated system because we, you know, you're going to be doing trending, you're going to be running complaint rates a lot more. Um, you need to be well aware of any even kind of sort of trend way early in a, in advance because, you know, as we said, uh, they want to know stuff immediately. And sometimes, you, you know, a company is aware of an, of a trend coming and you can make changes and you can start to do things and even notifying your notified body early and saying, Hey, we got this, you know, probably is going to be useful. So I would try to automate and it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be a really expensive software system. There are very, very expensive software systems for complaints and risk management. Um, but uh, we had we had one guy, uh, he was an electrical engineer. He, he wrote most of the code for this. And if, if he can do, you know, he, he's obviously very smart, but, you know, there's a lot of people with um, good training and that kind of thing, um, even just basic visual basic. <laughs> um, they can do that. Um, and at the same time, you know, a lot of us, what we did was start to make templates. And um, as Jamie had alluded to and was saying, start to make your reports. I mean, the things like the SSCP and the PSUR, you can start to make a version of that in advance um, and kind of get the groundwork um, ready so that when you have to have that, I mean, start to predict what it's going to look like later. Even though you don't launch a uh, MDR IFU, update the IFU and kind of get it ready to be to be compliant, uh, those things are going to um, really help um, because there's going to be things that every company is going to miss and and we'll during a submission we'll have to hurry up and turn around when you have your templates and you have an automated system it's going to save your submission it's going to save you later um even after post approval you know so those are my two things from my personal experience there's probably a billion tips out there but you know for small companies you know you don't have to have expensive software system just have to have um, you just have to have someone willing to do that, you know? Yep. And, you know, I can't, you know, stress that enough. I think that's a great point. Automate, automate, automate. Um, if for nothing else to improve your own quality of life, right? You don't want to be submitting complaints on a Saturday afternoon when you want to be with your family, right? You don't want the burden of that hanging over your head 
um, or, you know, monitoring those types of things or worried that, oh, did this get filed? Did they catch mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z? Automate, automate, automate. And, you know, create templates. You may, you may say, well, I don't, I've never done it. So the template's going to change, you know, so there's probably no point. That's not true at all. That's not Make true. It's not true. Right. It, it will change and that's mm-hmm. okay, but you, you will have something to start with. I made our SSC template and then soon after the, um, it's like a group called the MDCG, the medical device control group published an SSCP template. Um, and it looked different, but then after, you know, I realized it's a lot of the regulatory information was different, but all the essentials were there. So I was able to, to piggyback on that. Um, and it, it, w- it wasn't that bad. So could, because we had a start, we, we at least had something. Yeah, exactly. And you've thought, and by, and by doing it, you thought deeply about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you understand what you need to do. And I mean, I think that's just a huge, so huge step. So this has been wonderful. Thank you for all of your tips and background on PMS. It's been an awesome discussion. Always happy to talk about it. So we, yeah, I, you know, I could talk for hours. I think you could too. (laughs) Yes, very much. (laughs) Absolutely. But I think we'll wrap things up and we'd like to wrap up every episode with our segment called favorite Friday nights. So this is either your favorite way to celebrate on Friday night after having a hard week or gaining you know, approval of something, hitting a huge milestone, Mm -hmm. or just what you like to do on Friday nights in general. You know, we all work hard. We all like to decompress on on Fridays. We're huge fans of the weekends at Global. So what's your favorite way to spend Friday nights? Um, What's your favorite food? And are you the type of guy who leaves the office early on Friday afternoons or you stay until absolutely everything's done so your Monday's easy? So um, I wouldn't say that now that I have a family and I have a child, my Friday nights are very much not as exciting anymore. There's a lot of pressure off of having a good Friday night. So typically we kind of rotate some sort of takeout. And um, usually on Friday nights we watch um, a movie. Uh, We try to watch at least every once in a while a Ghibli Studios movie. Um, it's an anim- it's a, an anime company. It's owned by Disney now um, that everybody in the family loves. Um, uh, so usually I overwork, um, but joining Global, um, I've really learned a lot about kind of time management and how to bucket my time. So um, I, I have stayed late. I do stay late, but it's only... It's only really when I need to um, working at home has been kind of a game changer because I don't have an excuse anymore. I'm just upstairs. Um, and, you know, my wife will say, we need dinner. So let's go get dinner. Um, so that's, that's really been helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I typically if global needs me to do something on a Friday night, it gets done. Um, but I found that, I don't know, it's just a, I really like working for this company. They, they seem to really care about work-life balance. So when something pops up, I, I don't ever feel, you know, burdened or jaded. And um, 
that, that that's coming from someone who <laughs> worked every Friday night for a long, long time. So, um, that, I don't know, it sounds kind of boring, but, um, I get rest on my Fridays, you know? <laughs> so, Oh yeah. no, I absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I, you know, I'm the same, you're pre- preaching to the choir on the, you know, the, the, the guy who was first in last out, we're, you know, wrapping up things on Saturday and I've learned <laughs> through many, many times of trying to fight it that honestly, if you're, if you're putting in burning the midnight oil, your work product's not good. No, you're not, you're not efficient. And it would just be better for you to rest And many. We all have deadlines. There's things that need to get done no matter what. Sometimes that happens no matter what you're a professional. That's life. But, you know, there's a lot of times where people, you know, are want to think they're going above and beyond. And, and in all reality, it's like, just take a step back or ask for help and everybody's going to feel better in the long run. So it's definitely a different model. And, you know, I think it, well, it, it doesn't yeah. have to be, um, I will say one thing, even if you're working for a small company and, um, your boss wants you at your desk a lot, but you know, being productive is, is, is one thing where, it really helps to reach out to people and ask how to do things quicker and better. Um, you know, so sometimes I'll reach out to someone random and it's amazing what they'll come back with. So this isn't anything to, that we're bragging about. It's, it's more like, you know, don't, don't suffer <laughs> those nights by yourself. Exactly. You know, Ex- exactly. I mean, I think we all have this idea that you get a badge of honor when in reality it's like, you don't need to do that. Right. Yeah. You can live, you can, you can have your work. Yeah. And live your life. But it, what it takes is, you know, kind of getting rid of that culture or culture and then really accepting the culture of teamwork and relying on your colleagues. And, you know, we're blessed to have an amazing set of colleagues here. Oh um, my God. You know, wow. just ex- it's an, it's unbelievable. It really is. Um, you know, amazing people from all, walks of, of professional background and, and life. And it's, it's, you know, there's a resource somewhere for almost anything, which is just so cool. Um, but yeah, so. Yeah. Don't give up the faith, reach out, ask for help. I will say that's a, it's, it's a lonely industry if you don't, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So what's on the docket for this Friday takeout? We are off this Friday. This is the gonna when we're recording this. This Friday is gonna be the third uh, of July. So I'm gonna be um, prepping marinades and cutting fruit and making various, you know, um, I guess quotation mark salads. <laughs> so oh, cool. uh, for for Saturday, it won't be as much because we're gonna have a, a smaller cookout. Um, but I mean. Grill, not grilling out on Fourth of July is kind of a just a, a crime. So yeah. we have to. So we're going to do something for that. Um, so it'll be a lot of prep work on Friday, but that way Saturday we can just not worry about it. So I'm excited. Yeah. How about you? That's awesome. I think I'm. So this weekend I am endeavoring to get a whole bunch of house projects done. My wife and I are expecting in the fall, oh, and okay. I would like to play. Thank you. I'd like to play the rest of the summer. So I'm going to try to knock out some things, but I actually think one of our colleagues, Jacob is going to be in town. And so he might drop by on Friday night and there is a almost hundred to one chance. We will be grilling some form of steak. 
I mean, it's, it's kind of necessary, you know, I, I think so. I I definitely subscribe (laughs) to that tradition. Well, I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thank you very much, John. Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful to chat with you. And um, we look forward to potentially having you back on to get into some more of the nitty gritty later. Okay. I'm always happy. This was fun. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. And once again, a big thank you for John for joining us today to talk about all things post-market surveillance. If you like today's show, please feel free to like, subscribe, or comment on your favorite podcasting app. And if you have any further questions regarding the topics we discussed on today's show, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly through email at info at globalrwc.com or by visiting our website at www.globalrwc.com. There you can find show notes, links to other episodes of the podcast, and more information regarding our approach to solving a wide variety of regulatory challenges. On our next episode, I'll be chatting with Sarah de Valence about search terms and search screening. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and we'll see you next time.